when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing another big week for Brexit. The UK and EU set out their negotiating mandates for what they want from a trade deal. But is there a deal to actually be done this year, or are both sides too far apart for anything to be achieved? Plus, we'll be looking at the latest scandal engulfing the Scottish National Party in Scotland and what it tells us about their march towards independence. I'm delighted to be joined by our columnist Robert Shrimsley, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, Europe Editor Ben Hall, Political Correspondent Laura Hughes and Scotland Correspondent Muir Dickey. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then please subscribe and you can receive it every Saturday morning. You can either leave us a review on iTunes and it's always much appreciated. So it felt a bit like history repeating this week. Brexit was back on the agenda with a big speech from Boris Johnson in Greenwich where he set out his aims and aspirations for a trade deal with the EU. Meanwhile, in Brussels, Michel Barnier set out a 33-page comprehensive mandate on what the bloc would like from that trade deal. Once again, it was bluster versus policy detail. And at first, it looked like both sides were on course for an almighty clash. But once you dig into the detail, it does seem there is a prospect for a deal to be done. Spen Hall, let's begin with you. You've been in Brussels this week, so as the voice of the EU in this discussion, talk to us about Michel Barnier and what he set out about what the bloc wants from the next stage of Brexit. Because, of course, as we know, Boris Johnson said he's got Brexit done. It isn't done by any means. I think it probably boils down to one question, if you really want to focus on it, and that's this level playing field idea. In return for zero tariffs and zero quotas, the EU wants zero dumping. So it wants assurances that Britain will not undercut all sorts of rules, environmental labour, particularly state aid. And this is actually fairly universally held across the bloc. It is not just the French demanding this hardline position. And what's interesting as well is that you'll find even sort of erstwhile UK allies in Europe, the Irish, are very worried about this level playing field. The Dutch, the Slovaks, for example, they can see how this could directly impact their business sectors and particularly on state aid, which I'm sure we'll come back to. And so... I think it will come down to many other things, fishing, financial services, obviously governance, the role of the European Court of Justice. But I think this level playing field issue is what we'll all focus on. Because I guess the concern from the EU's perspective is you've got this big economy just off the coast of the bloc and the UK is asking for preferential market access compared to other countries in return for looser obligations that it had as members of the bloc. And they want to obviously protect their trade. And of course, we should say the UK is not really asking for a huge amount in this deal. It's asking for a deal just covering goods, but it does still want preferential access and the EU doesn't want to allow that and create an economic competitor that could potentially undermine the EU's competitiveness. Yeah, a very large player right on its doorstep, highly integrated into its supply chains. 
and obviously companies with operations on both sides of the channel, I think that's also a factor that you have to bear in mind. This is what worries them. So they take a rather absolute position. Anything that allows Britain an advantage in the cost of production is the issue that they're trying to address. So Miranda Green, let's now go to Greenwich, where Boris Johnson gave a big speech earlier this week, where he set out his vision for the trade talks with the EU. Now, it wasn't quite as detailed as the mandate we got from the EU. We did get a written ministerial statement that set out a bit more detail about the kind of things the UK is looking for there. And one thing that struck me is that he was quite positive and friendly in the nature that he was speaking towards the EU because over last weekend there were some briefings from Downing Street that went out into the Sunday papers that basically said the EU has betrayed us already two days after we'd left the bloc by saying they'd moved the goalposts and they promised us a Canada deal and no Canada deal is on the table. But when you, if you just took that aside and listened to Boris Johnson, he was saying... There is a deal to be done on fish. We are going to have high standards. And he actually didn't mention the European Court of Justice once in his speech. Well, that's right. So if you compared the briefings to the Sunday papers over the weekend, which were very, very hard line and seemed to be designed only to do one thing, which is to extend a kind of political blame game in case the whole thing goes wrong. If you contrasted it with the Prime Minister's speech and then with the written documents produced by the government, they were quite different messages, which I think you pointed out midweek. So it's again this attempt to try and see beyond the rhetoric to the reality of what the British government's intentions really are. I do think he's going to have some problems Early on in her premiership, of course, Theresa May gave that big speech at Lancaster House where she laid down red lines, which forever after made her negotiating position and then her political position impossible. It seems as if Boris Johnson is aware of making that same mistake. So I thought it was striking in the Greenwich speech that he was quite as conciliatory. And they may well have learned from the May era that if you lay down red lines too firmly at this point, you're trapping yourself, not your negotiating partners on the other side of the table. Because, you know, it's going to be very important for Boris Johnson to have some wiggle room because he's going to have a lot of different political constituencies to keep on side when it comes to the end of the year and we find out what the deal really is. Robert Shimsley, one thing that's baffled me a bit this week is I can understand the approach taken in this speech at Greenwich and also the written ministerial statement was a bit harsher than that speech, a bit more specific on the kind of things the UK does and doesn't want in the trade deal. But what was the point of those negative briefings last weekend? Because this is something folks in Brussels I've spoken to have said, OK, I get that he needs to play to his base, but he's currently 49 points in the polls. He's got an 80-seat parliamentary majority. Why do you need to play to your base two days after after leaving the EU and just create bad faith again before the talks have even started. I think it's exactly right. But I think the mistake there is to view that as only happening when it comes to European policy. Someone said to me this week, if you actually look at the arc of this government already, what you have is sort of Monday through to Thursday, something resembling normal governmental (laughs) behaviour. And then somewhere on Thursday night, the briefing of the Sundays and the loyal press begins. And it's all the most foaming, aggressive stuff. So you have it's all Europe's fault on Europe. You have, we're moving the House of Lords to York. We're watching every restaurant in Westminster to find out who's dining with whom. There is a clear sort of two voices coming out of Downing Street on this. And I think the more shrill the voices at the weekend become, it is possible to think that this is because they are not winning the arguments Monday through to Friday. So I think it's as simple as that. Some of these people don't think about the European audience at all. They're only thinking about a media strategy and beyond it. The one argument they have is that things will get messier, things will get tougher, and they do want to be able to 
put in the public's mind, particularly the public that was sympathetic to Brexit, that we're up against tremendously tough opposition and these people will trick us and let us down in every respect. So only a true statesman could work his way through this process and deliver something at the end. And one of the things you hear from Conservatives all the time now is this phrase about the withdrawal agreement, which is they said Boris Johnson couldn't get a deal and he did. It's true they did say that, but what they didn't think was that he was going to accept the first deal that Theresa May was offered and rejected as as unsatisfactory. So there is a mythology being built around the way the government conducts itself. i just add to that that they also potentially do have Nigel Farage still breathing down their neck because, of course, Farage deciding to pull candidates out of all those seats helped them at the general election. He is planning to set up this new think tank, which he's going to call Brexit Watch, which will be an exercise in crying betrayal wherever he can. So they have done a deal that they need to honour on the right as well. Now, Ben, you mentioned level playing field. The way that I roughly see it, there are three big preconditions to any deal. Level playing field is the first one. And in the Greenwich speech, Boris Johnson said, we didn't leave the EU to go below European standards. In fact, we're going to go even higher on that. But... There's no need to write them into a treaty. So the first part of that is great from the EU's perspective. The second half is not so great. Now, the way potentially through that is, well, first of all, he's going to have to accept it's going to need to be in a trade deal. Same with any other trade deal. There's got to be some rules in there for holding those rules and regulations. But if he's saying that we're going to go so high, is it possible you could write in a floor and essentially say that this is where we started in terms of the UK and the EU, but our stands are going to be so high and so much better, it doesn't matter about this floor because we're never going to go below it anyway. Is that a way through? And do you think the EU could accept that? Well, there is this idea of non-regression in the technical jargon. Mm. In other words, you don't slip back, you don't water down the standards that have already been agreed as part of EU membership. And that may well play in certain areas. You could apply this idea to in the environment where Britain shares carbon neutrality by 2050 as an overarching goal. But as one official was putting it to me, well, what if Britain doesn't put in place an emissions trading scheme and puts in place a carbon tax instead, but sets the price of the carbon tax below the prevailing price of the emissions trading scheme in Europe? That gives British companies a big competitive advantage or could do. So that's the kind of example of where non-regression is not going to be enough, even in areas where you think the overarching goal and level of ambition may be the same. And one thing we've heard from the French side of this is this talk of dynamic alignment as well, essentially that this can move in terms of how aligned the UK is with the bloc, but there will be penalties in terms of market access and tariffs and all the rest of it if the UK does breach certain levels, because it's not just about faith in here. The EU is going to want this written into law and have repercussions if that sort of thing happens. Well, it was interesting in the Barnier mandate that was laid out, they only referred to dynamic alignment, if I'm correct, in the area of state aid, which has given the EU some wiggle room as well in order to come up with some kind of institutional solution for this. So I suspect you could have a system whereby you don't have to put into law that you will follow EU rule taking, essentially. But you would need mechanisms that would allow the EU essentially to retaliate if you started to diverge. The obvious way to do that is just to slap tariffs and quotas back on and to do it not just in the sector that might be directly affected by whatever the UK is doing, but on something else, which would have an immediate and potentially painful effect. You can imagine that may be where we end up with a compromise.
Now, Miranda, I can see you've got your slide ready, which will take us to the second precondition, which is fish. Now, of course, we've heard so much about this already, and it's one of the issues, maybe let's not say the biggest, most central issue to this whole thing. But the fact is, Boris Johnson has he's actually actively gone out to make this a totemic political issue within Brexit and has said, we're going to be an independent coastal state, we're going to take back control of our waters, and we're not going to do what Ted Heath did and sell out the fishermen in order to gain preferential access for other parts of the economy. But in the Greenwich speech, he did say there will be an annual system of negotiations. And people in Brussels that I've spoken to said that for the first time was Boris Johnson acknowledging the UK is not going to have full control over its waters. Because up until now, it's just been that sort of bellicose rhetoric. But that point, he's saying there will be some kind of negotiation. And as per the slide you've got in front of you, fish is going to have to get sorted quite quickly if this whole thing's not going to fall apart. Well, that's right. So there are real fish, of course, but there's also the symbolic fish which is can the square be circled? And on Michelle Barnier's lovely timeline, which I've got in front of me, I'm looking at now, by June it says, best endeavours to conclude fisheries agreement, which shows you how difficult it is in everyone's mind to try and come to agreement on this. But this question of an annual negotiation on access to British waters is actually something that the fisheries lobby in the UK have been asking for. So it does show you that there is a possible way out. Just on this general idea of wiggle room, while I'm looking at my slide here, I couldn't help but notice, as Michel Barnier stood there with it behind him on the screen, that after the end of this year, there's a little bit pointing with an arrow forward in time, which says negotiations of outstanding issues, which made me think that actually the idea of making it look as if everything is concluded by the end of the year, but with there still being a possibility to keep talking after the end of 2020 is on everyone's mind in Brussels as well. Yes, because Ben, Brexit never really ends, does it? It's just an endless series of negotiations. Yes, and I think even if they manage to get a kind of framework deal on trade in goods, fish and financial services, there's the whole host of other issues, internal security, um, foreign policy, defence, that they will have to deal with, and obviously trade in services, that these are going to rumble on for years and years in separate channels. So this is not going to end, even if we strike a deal at the end of this year. And finally, Robert, the last precondition to this whole package is the role of the ECJ here, because this is, again, politically something that's very important to Brexiters, very important to the Conservative Party, and they rallied against European courts and European judges, the kind of thing you see on the front page of the Daily Mail. Now, in the EU's mandate, they've essentially put a wedge between the UK and the ECJ by having an arbitration panel that would include, you know, some British judges, some European judges, but the ECJ would still be there as the backstop, shall we say, to this arbitration panel. And that if there's any question on union law, it has to go to the ECJ and that decision is binding. Now, in a legal sense, it does make sense because it is the court of the bloc and you can see why they'd want that. But from a political sense in the UK, is that far enough away or is that problematic? Well, I think it's non-negotiable. So in a sense, it doesn't really matter whether it's far enough away or problematic. I think the realists within the UK government know that, as you were saying, in all matters of European law, the final arbiter is going to be the European Court of Justice. So the question is whether the disputes mechanism is solid enough for the British government and for Britain to be able to say, look, we actually have a different mechanism here. It only goes up to the ECJ on specific things. And the dispute mechanism feels real and that they feel in most cases it will settle things. It'll be interesting to see how often things go to it. It seems to me that, rather as Ben was saying, that the British government's position is essentially saying we will agree never to break free from a level playing field as long as you agree not to tell us we can't. We will rarely exercise that power 
as long as you give us the power to exercise it. That's taking back control for you. Now, if we take this whole package together, Miranda, at this very early stage, how do you feel about the prospect of striking this skeleton deal on these core issues before the end of this year? Because we've got such little time to do this, really. The negotiations are going to start properly in March. And I imagine the first few weeks we'll be talking about sequencing and outcomes and not actually getting into the details. Then you've got the deadline of this summer for fishing. And then you've got the October deadline for getting this whole thing done wrapped up to be in law by the end of this year because I think we've talked backwards and forwards about whether they'll extend or not but at this point let's assume they don't extend. Given where we are, how are you feeling about it? Well it always has been about how you define a deal being done and so so long as they can make whatever they can conclude look convincing then they'll probably pull it off and it's going to be a question of what is left out of the deal and what is still as you said under discussion for years to come. I mean, you only have to look at, for example, somewhere like Switzerland, which is in a constant rolling set of disputes with Brussels over the ECJ, having referendums to opt out of bits of its relationship with Europe and then Brussels being unhappy with that. You know, this is going to run and run, but they will probably be able to put some sort of full stop on it by the end of the year because it's in everyone's interest to do so, remember. And Ben, what do you think about that? Because, of course, this is still leaving the single market and the customs union. And, of course, the key factor that's changed with the election is Boris Johnson is accepting trading friction. Theresa May was talking about frictionless trade. He's accepting there's going to be checks, there may be tariffs. So really, this thing is about trying to stop tariffs from coming in. But fundamentally, trade with the EU is going to change in a big way come December, regardless of what's in that deal or not. Yeah, and there's going to be friction, as you say, and probably quite a lot of disruption because they're going to have to be checks and product standards. And there's a huge amount of paperwork and bureaucracy on rules of origin that needs to be done. So it is going to make a very big difference come the end of the year, whatever, whatever kind of deal we get. And I think from the Brussels point of view, they're conscious of that fact. And they now know that Boris Johnson has sort of internalised that pain. What they're really just trying to figure out is how serious is he about this deregulation stuff? And they're trying to fathom what this government really wants to do. Obviously, it's too early to tell. They're not the only ones. And finally, Robert, one last thing I want to inject into this we've heard this week is talk about Australia because we've heard about the Australian-style points-based system and we heard added to the lexicon an Australian-style trading arrangement, not a trade deal, trading arrangement. And clearly Dominic Cummings has enjoyed one of his focus groups and has put this to people. No deal, that sounds nasty and very problematic. But an Australian-style arrangement, that sounds great because Australia is full of prosperous, happy people, full of sunshine and prosperity. Whereas in fact... Were you on holiday recently, Seb? It's funny, I was in Australia. You mentioned that, Robert. And the fact is, Australia is in long, complex negotiations with the EU over trade deal and minus 29 side deals on things about aircraft landing rights and wine labels. It doesn't have a trade deal. This is just a clever bit of rebranding. Yes, I spent a lot of time studying the Australia-EU trade deal. It turns out there isn't one, so it's not there yet. I don't know what that was about, other than attempting to say to the EU, rather as Miranda was alluding earlier, look, we've got other options, there are other things we can do. But I think the truth is we all know roughly where this deal is going to land if it lands. Unfortunately, like a lot of disputes, you can see the end, but you can't necessarily how you get there. And the question is, what derails it? And I personally am more nervous about the fish deal than I think some people are because it wraps up into the whole issue of Scottish independence as well. And that's what makes the Conservatives so nervous. 
This week has been a difficult one for the Scottish National Party in Scotland. On the morning the party was about to produce its budget, the Finance Minister Derek Mackay had to resign over a revealing expose about hundreds of text messages he'd sent to a 16-year-old boy. It's come at a pretty bad time for the party as they're about to enter the trial for their former First Minister, Alex Salmond. And while there's not been a massive surge in support for independence. So, Mio Dickey, can you just give us the background to this story? and the details of what happened. Yes, well, as you say, the Scottish Sun and its Thursday edition revealed that Derek Mackay, the Finance and Economy Secretary, one of the most important people in the Scottish government and favourite, in fact, to succeed Nicola Sturgeon if and when she moves on or out, had been sending social media messages to a 16-year-old boy. There was no question he could survive it, but for this to happen on budget day adds to the shock value and is the kind of thing that uh, the stuff of government nightmares are made of. So when I saw these messages, Laura Hughes, it kind of reminded me about some of the excellent reporting you've done over the years about sexual harassment and power plays in Westminster as well. It's just remarkable that someone could be in such a high-profile position like Mr Mackay send these messages and somehow think that it may not come out and may not be problematic in any way. Yeah, when these politicians come out and apologise... It always feels a bit insincere to me because he was sending messages to a child at the beginning of this week. He apologised because he'd been caught. And that's what we've seen happen a number of times. It's not politicians willingly coming forward to apologise to their families and their party. It's when the media gets hold of the story. And we've been talking about him as a young man, but he really is a child. I've never come across a story actually on that level of severity. This is really, really serious. And I think that the law states for him to be actually prosecuted in court for grooming, there would have to be evidence that he messaged this young boy before he was 16. We don't know that. But it's really one of the most disturbing stories I think I've heard in the last few years. Robert, it's quite rare for a story about what happens in frontline Scottish politics to break into the UK's national consciousness, which is sometimes often a failing of the UK media to notice these things. But it has come at this moment of a sense that things might not be going ideally to plan for the SNP. They've been in power for 13 years now. And of course, these questions about their record on public services start to be asked more and more frequently. And of course, this is in the whole context of Brexit, which has happened last week and has changed the calculation about what the party is going to do next and its push to have Scotland break away from the UK. Yeah, I mean, I think what you have to remember is the SNP has been in power a very long time in Scotland and a lot of people at the very top of the party have been there for a very long time. Nicola Sturgeon, John Swinney, people like that. And it is running out of steam. You you just sense it is falling into these kind of slee scandals that long-running governments get into. It is facing some accountability over its stewardship of Scotland. There were figures very recently showing very long waits at A&E. I think a 1,000 people waiting up to 12 hours at A&E. There was an education report at the very end of last year that showed Scotland still in a pretty bad place on maths and science, way behind England. People are beginning to hold the SNP to account for this. At the same time, Nicola Sturgeon is also facing divisions on her strategy in terms of independence. And she made quite a big speech at the end of last week telling people to be patient, we're not going to hold a wildcat referendum. There are people in her party who want her to do so. And so I think what you're seeing is a party in the normal levels of trouble and the only support it has still is reverting back to the independence issue to keep its supporters focused on the big picture and try and keep its party together.
Samir, how deep are these questions about Nicola Sturgeon's leadership of the party? Because the handover from Alex Salmond to Herb was very seamless and the party obviously did very well in the UK's general election last year. Dropped back a bit, but still did pretty well in the Holyrood elections as well. Are those questions sort of really problematic for her or are they still quite surface level? I would say that Nicola Sturgeon at the moment is still very secure as leader in, in terms of support from her members. But what Robert says is absolutely right. There is growing discontent among the party ranks about the strategy on independence. And there is a real impatience, which she can't ignore. There's also the Alex Salmon trial coming up, which we can't really talk about in any detail because the legal proceedings, but clearly it presents potential risks for the party. But what's also important to see in Scottish politics is while as Robert says, the SNP is now finding increasingly difficult to shrug off its failings in government. It's facing an extremely weak opposition and it benefits from the ability to compare what's happening in Scotland often to what's happening in England and from its ability to blame failings on the UK government and on the Brexit uh, uncertainty. And so Politically, amazingly, opinion polls recently have shown that after 13 years in government, the SNP has something like 50% of voters intending to back it in the constituency part of the vote for the Scottish Parliament next year, which is, given how long it's been in power and these kind of troubles, is, is remarkable. It will be very interesting, of course, to see whether Derek Mackay's disgrace has any impact on those numbers. Well, this is a leadership issue as well, Laura, because Derek Mackay has quit as finance minister in Scotland. He's been suspended from the SNP's party, but he's still a member of the Scottish Parliament here. And obviously his political career is in severe trouble at the moment. But it's embarrassing for Nicola Sturgeon to have this happen for, as Muir was saying, someone who was as close to a likely successor as you might have, someone with a very senior position. You've seen people like John Swinney, the Deputy First Minister, come out saying, I had no idea of this behaviour, which, again, raised the question of were they just totally blind to this or was it just one of those things that you get so often in politics where there's often questions about people, but people don't often say them or raise them in public out of fear of what consequences it may bring? Yeah, I mean, it's actually extraordinary to think he's still allowed to walk around the Scottish Parliament. If this was a normal company or industry, you'd think that if your colleague had been found to have messaged inappropriately to a child, that they wouldn't be allowed back into work the next day. That's the most striking thing here. Politics just does not function on a normal HR level to other companies. And you're right, the reason these stories don't come out and the only reason they ever do is because often the media gets hold of them is that there are places that supposedly now complainants can go to complain about their politicians. But because of the power imbalance here, because of the public nature of these politicians' roles, it's terrifying for a lot of people to come forward. And this boy was 16, so presumably it was his family that contacted the journalist, probably out of desperation because they didn't know where to go. And we know anecdotally that party whips, leaders of political parties, everyone that serves in them, they know who the wrongans are. They know who has acted inappropriately, but often nothing happens. It is only when it goes to the media that people suddenly take action. And it's really shocking that it has to be that way. Indeed, and it's very much the same in Westminster as well. And we've seen that over many, many times that when... MPs who have acted inappropriately or broken the law, it often comes out through the media because the whip system obviously wants to protect the party's integrity. 
Yeah, I should say that the SNP leadership is absolutely insistent. They had no idea about this kind of behavior. And I think if there is evidence that they did, then they would be in extreme trouble. Absolutely. And finally, for Robert Mears, about this question about the lack of opposition in Scotland here, because as we said, we talk about these travails for the SNP and its challenges of independent leadership, but it's still so far ahead. It is still, Robert, the dominating force in Scotland here. And we've got the Hollywood elections coming up in 2021. The Scottish Tories are going through a leadership election. The Scottish Labour are absolutely nowhere. So it would have to be something pretty big that's going to knock the party off its perch because it is just so far ahead. Well, I think you're right. And I mean, I think there's a clear crossover to Brexit in Britain, which is that you have one important party in Scotland making the case for independence and all the others making the case for independence. So it mops up the nationalist vote, as we've seen in opinion polls recently, that could be as high as 51, 52%. It's certainly at the very least in the mid 40s. So they've got a lock on all of that vote. And that's quite hard to shift. The Labour Party, as you say, has completely collapsed in Scotland. The Tories are OK. But I think the key to me, it seems, is the Labour Party has got to find a way to revive in Scotland so that when the independence battle comes, it's not just Scotland versus the Tories. Emil, one last quick final thought. Yeah, absolutely. The Conservative Party is in better shape, but it has no sign of being able to break out to the kind of level of support that would make it an alternative government to the SNP. There is a real weakness in the pro-union political forces at the moment. And with the kind of UK politics we might be expecting under Boris Johnson, it may be even more difficult for union parties to counter the SNP over the next few years. I think it needs a lot of rethinking about how the union should work from Westminster to secure Scotland's place in it. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Miranda, Robert, Ben, Laura and Muir for joining us. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then subscribe. You can find out more details at ft.com forward slash offer. And we should remind you again, we're doing a live episode of FT Politics on February the 26th, where you can come along to Bracken House, ask us questions and see all the magic behind the scenes of how the podcast is created. You can find more details of that on the FT's website at live.ft.com. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Jack Denton. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 